0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 007x7, 007 7, the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond
1: films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 56 to 63, which begin with Bond breaking away from some tourists in the Hagia Sophia and end with Moneypenny interrupted as she listens in on a steamy recording of Bond and Tanya and M requests her to take down a cable for 007. In between, Red Grant stalks Bond and eliminates the man with the beret, Bond and Karim plan the theft of the lector using a map drawn by Tanya, and Bond meets Tanya on a boat where he records the final details of the plan with her. And today we are joined by cinematographer, editor, filmmaker, frequent cohort on our Patreon episodes, the one, the only, Mr. Todd Norris. Thank you for joining us, Todd.
2: Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, this is becoming a... Uh, a nice tradition, and so, <laughs> and uh, given the number of James Bond films, maybe it'll keep going. So, yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me.
1: You know, it occurred to me as I was watching these minutes that I think, weirdly enough, that this sequence in the mosque is my favorite sequence in the whole movie, that there's something about the use of scale and space that very much reminds me of Hitchcock, tiny little Tanya moving into those massive spaces. The depth of field—you can see her way, way off in the background—and as these other characters move, these beautiful lateral dollies. It's—it's it's almost like Antonioni in a way, in this sort of architectural thing going on. So there's our Antonioni and Hitchcock, both whom I, I love. Um, incredible music, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, how did they light this place, Todd?
2: <laughs> well, let me dig out my exact lighting scheme and no, uh <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, Mitch, I know that you had asked me uh earlier to just kind of think about that. Um and so I was attentive to it when I was watching these minutes. And what's what's interesting what I can see is that there are some uh like low hanging chandeliers all through the place that my guess is are, are are you know the actual practical lighting for that place and they're not on so because, so it occurs to me that maybe if that place is you know tourists are allowed through in reality i.e. not when a James Bond movie is being filmed that maybe those lights are used to kind of illuminate the dim interior of the place but they were just would they would flare the lens and they were not bright enough to do the job so they've turned them off and they're just hanging there for no reason as you watch the movie And then it just looks like, boy, they must have just, you know, blasted some 10Ks and 20Ks or whatever. You know, they had uh, just hard light in different places and, and just out of the way. And luckily, the place is cavernous and also has a lot of columns and little areas where you can hide lights so that you don't see the source. But my guess is it's just a, you know, three or four main, big, bright, giant lights and then, you know, some smaller things for the closer shots, but yeah, they're just blasting it with hard light. And and you can see a couple of there's a shot where James Bond is hugging up against the side of a wall, you know, peeking around to see the guy. And I noticed he so, so that was the clue. There's two big hard shadows. You know, there's one hard shadow on the wall right behind him, so there's one big light kind of off camera left hitting him. But then on the floor below his feet, there's a another hard shadow going straight camera, right? So he's being lit by two big giant hard lights. Uh, the side, you know, the, the side light being brighter and then the front light, which is essentially a fill. It's funny, but that back in the day, a fill light would be just a big giant hard light. But anyway, so that that's my plan. Nothing, nothing mind blowing, but just sheer wattage. Off yeah, it did look like
1: behind Tanya when she was coming in that they maybe had a couple of big lights outside the entrance that were just blasting in behind her that maybe they gelled a little gold because the light behind her has a slightly different color temperature than the rest of it.
2: Yeah, that's true. And, and so um, what it looks like is that if you think about it, you know, this was all way before HMIs and things like that existed, which are daylight balanced lights. So pretty much all the lights that they're using inside would be tungsten lights unless they use carbon arcs, but I don't think they did. So I think that sort of gold orange look to things is just, uh, well, you're right. They might've gelled it, but you're right. Like the, the ambient light that you can see coming through the skylights and just there's like that first low angle where James Bond walks to camera and it's very low. So it reveals the space, all the light outside looks very blue and it's not the sky. It's just daylight. I think they shot it with tungsten balanced film and are using tungsten lights to light with, and then all the daylight that's ambient looks very blue. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it occurs to me how how boring this conversation can seem.
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's like when you look at it now and you actually look for that, it makes a difference, I think. Uh, uh, I, I, I just will also just say um, there's a travelogue quality to this and to these movies that I really like because I like to travel, and when I was a kid watching these movies, I couldn't travel. And so... You get to go to these places, in in this instance, a a, a structure that was built in 520-something under Constantine and that started out as a Christian church. And then when when the Ottoman Empire came in and Constantinople fell, it became a mosque. And then uh, it became a museum, which is what it was when this was filmed. And now it's back to being an actual working mosque. Hmm. So it's, you know, the space itself is is a really fascinating mix of, of Christian and, you know, what the Spanish would call Moorish. But it's Byzantine. It's the Byzantine domes. So there's a lot of really cool archaeological architectural stuff going on visually in this space as well.
0: We get that one shot of her coming in and those two massive, well, I guess it's Bond coming in actually, still wearing the sunglasses. And we get those two. What would you call those? Those big discs with the Arabic written on them behind yeah, them. Yeah, the I don't know wall. what you call those, but yeah, they're isn't very that amazing cool. and, the, and very striking. Yeah, 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 very striking. Yeah. And telling us exactly what this this place is. You know, if we didn't know already um, that we're in a mosque here, or once what was once a mosque.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the scene now, and, and Mitch, I, I do see what you're talking about when she enters. Uh, there's this very warm, golden quality to the light. Uh, behind her, but I think it's seems that way because of the contrast. The, the, yeah, the ambient light, which very well may be the actual daylight coming through, is is much more blue. So you get this very sort of <laughs> it's it's the '60s version of the teal orange color grading that <laughs> dominated right. movies, you know, ten years ago. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, I do agree with what you said as far as like the Antonioni thing. There's nothing like massive columns architecturally so that when you do a tracking shot to give this sense of of a perspective it's it's very cool you know when you see the ones in the foreground seemingly moving faster than the ones in the background so you get this very definite sense of 3d space very cool.
1: I noticed there's breath coming out of of uh, Connery's mouth in one shot. I don't know if that was like first shot of the day and it was cold in there or what, but he he breathes and you can see there's condensation coming out of his mouth. Nowhere else, but but there.
2: It's like the thing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> He's got ice cubes in his mouth. Uh, Mitch, you mentioned Hitchcock
0: earlier. Was the was the man Man Who Knew Too Much the movie you had in mind when you thought about? Hitchcock specifically, I don't know why, but I'm picturing. It's a movie I haven't seen in a long time, but I'm picturing Jimmy Stewart walking around in massive uh, spaces like this.
1: Yeah, in and that I, film. I, you know, almost all of his movies has at least one moment where you're in some kind of massive, massive long shot, and the character is really tiny, you know, walking around in that space. So, yeah. um, I can think of North by Northwest moments, and I can think of of uh I, I can think of several other moments where where the space dominates the character. Yeah, yeah it believe, seems like a lot yeah. of
2: Hitchcock's 1950s movies where Robert Burks worked with him in those Technicolor travelogue films. There was these very deliberate... Yeah, just seeing Connor here, you think, well, it could be Cary Grant in a suit. It could be Jimmy Stewart. It's like a guy mm-hmm. in a suit in a massive yeah. space. <laughs>
1: a massive underpopulated space, usually, mm-hmm. Yeah. too, which is really interesting. But you're right, all those VistaVision, Paramount VistaVision numbers that Hitchcock did I'm just getting ready to watch To Catch a Thief again because my daughter has never seen it, and I'm sure that we're going to get some nice. There's a there. there's a black sure. and
2: white striped t- shirt that Cary Grant wears in that <laughs> movie that just causes the TV to go nuts. Even in 4K, it's uh, it's it's really, really difficult. You know, you watch it and it's just like it's like a nuclear shirt that he's wearing all through the movie.
0: <laughs> That's funny. I, I was saying to somebody the other day that I felt like that problem seemed to have gone away somehow. Uh, I used to see that a lot in films where you'd get the Blu-ray, and there would be some pattern that wouldn't that the Blu-ray couldn't handle, and I haven't seen that in years that I can think yeah. of. And I thought, maybe my TV—I've got a 4K TV—maybe it can handle it all now. I don't know yeah. if that's well. What normally it, is, it but
2: can, but that—that's like it's the first time I'd seen that problem. Yeah, since the days of standard deaf TV. But it's like, boy, yeah. that shirt that he's wearing in To Catch a Thief is just like the exact frequency that the tv it's like the brown note of uh <laughs> <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> is, is that called the moray effect yeah 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 well, i also remember when LaserDiscs first came out something about the 20th century fox laser discs would be overscanned somehow and it would cause this shimmer along all of the edges and there were a couple of those that were pretty annoying <laughs> but uh yeah this version uh we'll see we'll see whether cary grant's Sure, it drives everybody crazy when I watch it this week.
0: Well, I'm sure it will in one way or another. I mean, he is, <laughs> he is Cary Grant after all.
1: Did you notice the little sped-up action with the with the karate chop? Yeah, it, it made me think of something. Uh, we've
0: talked a lot about Peter, Peter Hunt's innovations with action editing and chopping out frames here and there or, or speeding it up to get a little extra oomph. And I was just watching... Uh, Don Don Siegel's "The Big Steal" with Robert Mitchum and, and Gene Simmons, and in the opening scene, William Bendix comes in and has Mitchum at gunpoint, and Mitchum turns around and makes a move, and then does a punch, and boy, is it just get real fast, right, as he punches him. And I thought, oh wow, that's that's definitely not that's definitely been around for a while. And that was uh, Sam Beatley was the name of the editor, the same guy who edited out of the past as well. Um, but I was like, yeah, of course Don Siegel would also be at the forefront of the, of action, you know, editing mm-hmm. uh, in one way or another. But, and I don't know if we've really been saying that Peter Cook, or sorry, Peter Hunt, not Peter Cook.
2: Peter, <laughs> Peter <Cook. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> funny Dudley ever Moore, ever I think, worked.
0: had uh, invented this. Uh, no, we haven't been saying that Peter Hunt invented this or anything per se, but we're just, it was pretty innovative. The way he used it, multiple way he uses it multiple times in his films. I well, can't and say, it's so
1: sudden. It's not. It's not the whole shot, and that's it. it just oh, this wasn't
0: either. It was. Yeah, yeah, Mitchum turns around, and then as his arm starts to move, it suddenly goes whap and knocks him back, and you really feel it. And I'm like, oh wow, that was, you know, I forgot to look at the year. I think that was 1947 or 48. Hmm. Um, so pretty innovative stuff there, but just
1: something I noticed in a film I was watching the other day. So, do you know whether this is going to get into the weeds? So, sorry, you can fast forward. Oh no, the weeds are two, great. 2 minutes if you want to. So so would you then order the lab while it's actually printing the negative to like double double print the frames or skip frames or or would that be done as a separate single piece and then you'd cut it in and then it'd go back to the to the optical printer when it would you know, Ooh. any ideas?
0: No, I don't. I mean, you know, you could uh, under crank, right? You could under crank on and do it from the get-go but that would be the whole shot yeah but if that you're doing work. it where you're cutting it in i you know i think with with cook with hunt god i keep saying cook it's so weird <laughs> um with hunt he's cutting frames out right like so he's doing it himself from time to time we, we've talked about him just cutting frames out to speed it up right maybe, but as maybe far that's as actual sped up right. film uh
1: maybe, I think you kind of have to tell yeah. the lab but maybe you're right. Maybe he's cutting the frames out yep. to, to create that sense of acceleration. And he's doing that in the cutting room. And then when they put the order into the optical printer, it's going to be going back and not printing every other frames. Because, you know, with optical printers, you've got two, mm-hmm. you've got two things running through the printer. Mm-hmm. And, and in between each, each on one side, you have the image. On the other side, you have um, leader, blank leader, and then back and forth. So the optical printer would be working really hard to pull that off, I would think. Yeah, I, I, don't know.
2: I don't know. I didn't know if you guys knew more about this or not, but I had that same question as you were talking about it. Because the the easiest thing and the best thing to do would be to have done it to undercrank, which means you know you you do it while you're shooting it. You actually um, shoot it at a slower frame rate so that when it just gets developed, it plays back faster. You know that would be the most smooth, best way to do it. But if this was being done as a choice by the editor to make, you know, the footage probably look more exciting, then you can definitely do it as far as I, what I know about optical printing and, you know, that kind of stuff. But it would, you're kind of limited to uh, kind of like double speed, you know, because if you do something that's like one and a half times or whatever, it's it, it doesn't divide evenly. And so... I don't even know with an optical printer how you would do that without the math just not working out. You know what I'm saying? Because if you only print every other frame in the optical printer, then it basically plays back twice as fast. But you can't really print one and a half frames. Like, mm-hmm. you just can't do that. So uh, a-, a goofy example would be like in uh, Mad Max Fury Road, where they literally, in the nonlinear editor, would speed things up, and then so that would become a... you would You would see this kind of glitchy look to Mm -hmm. Fury Road which became an aesthetic it it, kind of made me cringe sometimes because that's the kind of thing as an editor you're supposed to not it's not supposed to look like that where things look staccato or like a, a wonky frame rate but they leaned into that in Fury Road and made it look weird but back in the days in the 1960s I don't even know if you could do that with an optical printer so my guess is it's either double speed like every other frame is printed or they did it in camera and that's probably the only way you could do it um
1: yeah, and maybe the cut is fast enough that the whole thing could be going at 18 frames per second or whatever, and I just didn't, you know, or 16 frames per second, and I just didn't really notice mm-hmm. it. But it sem- seemed like it started one speed, went to another speed, yeah, and then cut, and then you cut out, um, like the thing that John was talking about with Mitchum. So uh, it it would be a long time before you would get a camera that could, could yeah. speed up and slow down <laughs> and adjust the aperture in right. all one fell swoop right, so right there were always lots of ways of having to work around that yeah
2: well no you're right like if you do it that way that's what you do you shot it at 24 frames and then of course you print the you print that shot twice once at normal speed and then you print the same shot again double speed you know by skipping every other frame and then as an editor you literally just make the cut at a certain point if you wanted to go from regular speed to double time mm-hmm. right good. on that frame you just cut in the new faster version and that might have been how they did it that yeah. sounds
0: that yeah. sounds like the prob- probable um way they did it yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm it's glad only we got through Peter that. hunt. We're still around. <laughs> <laughs> we could ask him.
1: Yes. So the music that comes up when Tanya places the compact down. It's a really dramatic, you know, entrance into the soundscape, which up to this point has been nothing but the voice of the tour guide and then foleyed footsteps. Uh, we, have, we haven't talked as much about the score as I thought we would have, given that it is such an amazing John Barry score. But any thoughts about this particular cue, John?
0: Well, one thing, we, we when we talk about the score, we often talk about Thankfully, they didn't do the just do the bomb theme here. That's like what, most of the time right. we mentioned the score. It's like, oh well, they they showed some restraint there. Um, you know, it's really I could talk about it more in the um, context of the whole scene um, and how it's building to this point. Because I think we should talk about that too. Because uh, back to to Peter Hunt, we're getting this orchestrated like build up to this moment with the compact, right? So we're seeing Bond sees the guy. Bond hides. We're, uh, we're seeing him wrap a, a handkerchief around his gun preparing to hit him, right? Like that's what Bond's planning on doing, correct? Or he's shoot going, him if he has to. Or is he or suppressing? Else, is this some sort of who, suppression technique?
1: <laughs> I don't <laughs> think so. I think he just doesn't want anybody to notice he's carrying a gun, but he can have his gun out, and it yeah. looks like he's got a hanky.
0: I See, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, he's – He's making it a little bit. He's softening the blow a little bit because he doesn't actually want to kill the guy. I don't know why. I thought that. I just like, why is he doing that? Then later he says, "Well, it saved me the job of killing him." So clearly, he didn't <laughs> want to kill him. Um, but you know, we get this build up to it, and then that moment with the compact. So we're like, okay, we're at the, you know, apex of the scene. Something's about to happen, and then we get the the karate chop. There. I don't. I don't know what else to say about it other than it's been quiet, but we've been building with editing to a point and then the music accentuates the point well and that music if we're scoring the whole scene it wouldn't have the effect that it does have there but then we also have to talk about we've already talked about the karate chop but we got to talk about uh the perception that we have as a viewer when the karate chop happens which i don't know if i'm the only one or if everyone's supposed to feel this way but you initially think it's bond hitting him correct that's what you're i think supposed that's to what th-
1: you're supposed to think yeah, yeah.
0: and so It's interesting because they could have held off and just – they could have just kept the shot going and had him walk off frame and then turn around and be Red Grant. And I think that would have been a little bit of a cheesy reveal compared to what we get because I kind of like that they cut to Bond and go, hey, look, it wasn't Bond. And then you're like, oh. And then they cut back and and show that it was Red Grant. Even though your brain – might have already caught up to the fact, oh, this is going to be Red Grant, which is also makes the reveal satisfying because you go, hey, I knew it. It's Red Grant. So yeah, I, I like yeah. how it's edited. It's kind of shrewdly edited in that way. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely thought, for, you know, well, the other interesting thing is you have Bond right of frame, right? When you do see him. And then the karate chop happens from left of frame. So in a way, they're kind of saying this is definitely not Bond, right? Like the old... I don't know if yeah. it's Spielberg Spielberg didn't come up with this but I remember Spielberg is the guy who taught me the concept of how people move from one side of the frame to the other and how much of a storytelling technique that could be like you know if they're moving if they're moving from left to right or right to left on the frame and then you cut to them walking left to right that's probably telling you something or it's a, or it's a mistake <laughs> uh, I remember him saying that and then uh, advising oh wow I'm getting kind of deep here into a weird i can't even think of the name of the movie there was a movie where just gordon levitt played a bike messenger and it was written by and directed by spielberg's writer director
1: yeah ah. i know the movie you're talking about and uh what was it called i can't, I can't remember, remember but it. it was
0: the guy who wrote indiana jones 4 i think david uh, what's his name yeah Cop. david cap david cap yeah and i remember him saying you know the best advice i got was spielberg just said Make sure that for the first half of the movie, he's always moving left to right. And for the second half of the movie, he's always moving right to left because he was going back and forth. It's just such a simple thing. And he was like, it really helped the movie. But uh, this idea that our brains know or a little alarm goes off when somebody's coming from the wrong direction. But they do it so quickly and with the sped up karate chop even to kind of make you go, wait, what's going on? And then you get Bond. You go, oh, it wasn't Bond. Now it's starting to make sense. And it all clicks when you see Great. So I kind of got away from the music question and straight back into the editing uh, topic. But I think that's that's, the construction of that is all very interesting.
1: Well, and also, you know, the previous time we saw Red Grant, it was a suspense gimmick where we knew that Grant was there and nobody else did. Right. And so the suspense of the whole gypsy camp fight was what's Red Grant doing there? What's he going to do? Blah, blah, blah. In this case, the appearance of Red Grant is not suspense. It's surprise. Mm-hmm. We don't expect him. We're not looking for him. He hasn't been set up. And then bang, there he is, and he makes his move and then he leaves. He doesn't continue to stalk Bond. He 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 gets out of there. Nor does he take the doohickey. Like right. You, doesn't take the doohickey. In every move you've ever seen,
0: <laughs> when somebody has a doohickey and they get killed, the guy that killed him takes the doohickey. But yeah. not in this case, he just doesn't care about that right. thing. Well he doesn't yeah. have to care. It doesn't reason to care, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: He's just keeping things on course. Mm -hmm. He is like the conductor of the operation all the way through this. Uh, I think that the fact that the music comes up when we do see the doohickey Mm -hmm. is really interesting too because it says to the audience, this is now about this object. right? Or we want you to think it's about this object. I mean, she did walk in with it. We just saw her take it out, but then when she sets it down, the music goes bum bum bum, this is important. And that object is what drives the narrative of the scene. Until, you know, until we get into the next scene.
0: I have to say about this, uh, you know, what's in the compact. It's a it's it. I chuckle a little bit when he opens it. I mean, we've built up all this. Like we've just been saying we built up to this moment with action, with a murder happening right in front of us and then he opens it up and it's this like floor plan yeah. floor
2: paper it's like, like the I stuff know. i used to draw when i was playing right. D in junior high you know it's like a little dungeon map
0: <laughs> see i thought like a really funny like uh photoshop or you know video trick would be to run this scene All the way up to that point when he opens it, it's uh, Kevin McAllister's battle plan from Home Alone or something. It just kind (laughs) of looks like a kid's. kid's Well, (laughs) I think that's
1: so funny that you mention that because one of the interesting things about this whole sequence is that in the book, they go to bed together, and the next thing, she's got the lector, and they're getting on the train. Mm. So what's really interesting from a screenwriting point of view is how much real estate exists in this movie from the time that we, you know, left before these minutes sort of started to, you know, going to the mosque, getting the plans, and then checking the plans with Kareem, and then having another meeting with her where they go over yet another set of plans and decisions. Mm -hmm. And then, as we will see in the next series of minutes, a heist to get that hold of that lector all of that is invented for the movie Mm -hmm. and i don't know anybody have an opinion on whether it's a Uh, a a bunch of shoe leather
0: or or worth it no it 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 makes the movie more worthwhile what what kind of movie we have if that's all that happens here (laughs) what kind of midpoint we're in the middle of the movie what are we doing you know um feels like it'd be a episode of television if it if it were that truncated i guess
1: Cherchez but. la femme becomes Cherchez le doohickey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, two yeah.
2: things. Uh, first, the the movie you were talking about, the Joseph Gordon Levitt movie, is called Premium Rush. Premium just, Rush. Just for the people out there that listening <laughs> that. You know it's, so they wouldn't be looking something up if they're driving in their car and we're we're screaming at say, us for that. Yeah, right, yeah screaming rush. Uh, really terrible the, title. I, I gotta say, that's a <laughs> yeah. terrible title for a movie.
0: Anyway, go ahead. Second, it's
2: like an energy drink. It does, <laughs> it is. It's, it probably is. <laughs> I'm looking at the insert shot of the map. You know, he's just pulled it yeah. out of the compact, and what's funny is that shot is sped up. It's really funny. Like, um, if you look, if you watch it closely, you can tell it's sped up to get him to open it up faster. And Mitch, you and I, you know, we've shot a lot of insert shots in our time and you'll know (laughs) having somebody's hand, you know, like open a book or do a thing, like to get it, to do it either, it's either too fast or too slow. To get something to happen at the right speed for such a close shot is very difficult. So uh, (laughs) Peter Hunt solved that problem, uh, not only with the karate chop, but with the uh, map opening shot here too. It's not not as sexy, but I can tell he did it.
1: And, and before we mention this brilliant transition yeah. and how what we get from it, I just wanted to say one last thing about this, the way that Terrence Young is framing everybody in this uh, sequence, and that is that the camera is a little low. Like, we're kind of looking up, especially with Bond, mm-hmm. um, we're, and we're looking kind of up at everybody. And, and Grant's reveal, I think we're looking up at him. Mm -hmm. And I think we may be kind of eye-level with Mr. Beret, but we might still be just a teeny bit. I think that most of the film, Young, is kind of giving us a slightly larger-than-life view of everybody. And I I personally love that. Like As much as I love Howard Hawks, eye-level filming only does so much for me. And I like this little extra.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mitch, you and I had just watched La Femme Nikita recently. Uh, on the big screen at your place. And w- that was one thing we definitely noticed about the lupusones framing was, you know, very much everything is, everybody's shot from a low angle. Um, and I've been watching some John Huston stuff recently. The Criterion Channel's got John Huston films and he's one of the guys who really sort of pined, like the Maltese Falcon, that whole movie. Oh my God, it's um, all ceilings. Mm-hmm. It would uh, make Orson Welles blush, yeah.
1: <clears throat> so this transition from the little map to the big map. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool.
0: Oh yeah, love it. I guess technically this isn't exactly a match cut, but I would probably close. write. close. I'd probably close. still write match cut too mm-hmm. in my script if I was writing yeah. this scene transition. Uh,
2: yeah, I noticed so many other or many other scenes in this movie, and this is typical of the time. The transitions are with dissolves, and mm-hmm. uh, you know there's a lot of dissolves in this movie, and so that's that makes this one stand out even more so because it feels, it's it's just deviates from that sort of stock formula of like oh time is passing let's dissolve to the next thing uh it's very cool you know and i guess the screenplay probably indicated this i don't know i'd be interesting to find out if that was terence young's idea or if it was already indicated in the script or not
1: well Peter much like, like if we speed up the insert shot the timing <laughs> will be perfect and then we can make the cut i mean who knows yeah he's such a collaborator
0: to me it's it, much as we talk about wipes Um, increasing urgency as being one of the uses for a wipe transition. This also does so, especially if we're, if we're kind of tuned into the dissolve as being the transition. So the dissolve is getting us through, okay, we're moving through at this certain pace and now things are starting to pick up when we do match cuts. It's starting to get real. That's how I feel about it. We're starting to pick up the pace of the story. Um, And, uh, and we kind of get, two of them here in these seven minutes, not, not the exact same kind of cuts, but similar transitions. Yes. Uh, one visual, one audio, and that's doing the same thing. It's like, okay, we're now we're not going to spend waste any more time. We got to get this story rolling. And so we get it with this and we get it with the transition later where we'll, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that.
1: Yeah. It's super stylish. Like mm-hmm. the fact that we're kind of in a, a a bit of a treading water place narratively because we're setting everything up and and figuring out the plan to get the thing. But, yeah, these are are really modern touches to move us from one scene to the next with some kind of a, a, I'm not going to say it's a gimmick, but it's an inventive transition for every single one of the bumps from scene to scene in these minutes. So here we are in Karim's office, and I just w- wanted to point out one thing that I noticed this time watching it was that when Kareem says, my dear James, mm-hmm. his lips are saying something else. And I'm yeah, trying yeah. to figure out what he's saying and I can't figure it out. I was like, I thought maybe it was like, oh, there's a thought because he's just said, you know, oh, she'll do anything for you. So he's maybe it's something lascivious that he says that they decided that my dear James would be nicer because it's not my dear boy. So anybody uh, listening who has a a knack for lip reading, we would love to know what we think that Pedro Amadars is saying in that moment that's been overdubbed. Yeah, this is
0: (laughs) a strange moment. I noticed it as well. It didn't, didn't know what to make of it, you know. Just to be honest, I kind of dismissed it as this happens sometimes in movies, especially in that time. Like occasionally, you'll not even just in that time, but occasionally you'll just see something like, "Well, clearly they changed their mind last minute about what he should say here." Uh, so I didn't really or think he flubbed the line, it I guess, it's
1: possible. But I just, I always love it when these kind of things happen, and we can we can go back and look at them carefully and try to figure yeah. it out.
0: This this is a wonder, right? So, yes it is a one so you might yeah. keep you might keep a take with a flubbed line <laughs> depending on how the other <laughs> takes went you know mm-hmm. uh, who knows how many times they went through this especially when you've got a um an ill and often tired star who's running right. the scene it's his scene so I bet you they went look we're not gonna ask him to do 20 takes and we're um this one's the best one in every way except for that we'll just dub it
1: that's probably well, can we talk happened. about character for a minute? Is anything revealed about Bond's attitude toward Tanya in this scene? We clearly know how, <laughs> we clearly know how Karim feels. you know mm-hmm. he's a little jealous I mean a little envious of what of what Bond has there in this situation. but um what do we learn about about Bond in this moment?
0: I think he's still professional here he's not falling for her at any uh, yet. He doesn't, it's all professional for him. It's all about the means to the end. I think he's telling the truth when he says it's all about getting the elector, wherein we're going to learn in the next scene that she's already, I think that we're learning that she's already moved past mere professionalism. And she's actually enamored of him, which uh, we could talk about that more, but uh, I don't know. I mean, that's all I can really think of is I think he's telling the truth. I think his attitude here is honest. Yeah. And I think one, that one night with
1: her it didn't do anything for him. Really,
0: didn't do anything for him. But Karen Bay knows that it could still. Yeah, it's a warning. That's the thing. Scene, he's a little it? bit ahead of him. Yeah, yeah. this is a mentoring relate. Uh, you know, Bond is still kind of young. Bond is still learning. I think that's part of what we're how his character is being built for us franchise wise. Here, uh, we're seeing that, oh, uh, he's naive enough to think that he can't, he won't fall for her.
2: Wow, that's not how I read the scene at all, really. But maybe that's because uh, I didn't watch the movie in its entirety just recently. You know, I saw it a couple months ago. I watched the whole thing. And then for this show, I watched... I skipped through the movie and then I watched this scene. But um, just watching this six minutes or these seven minutes uh, as a separate entity, it, it seemed very sexist to me and very much like two guys... Sort of, I mean, even though, yes, they have uh, different opinions, but the crux of the scene is, hey, you know, Bond, you're uh, you're letting the wrong head think for you, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, like, so that the whole last moment of the scene was like, are you sure that's all it is? And Bond kind of goes, oh, well, I, uh, you know, there's this kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink uh, about, you know, the hanky-panky that's going on that's beyond the espion- espionage of the movie. So I don't know, it felt a little... And I don't know if, you know, their characters, their actual story characters, if that's really what it was about. But the feel of it as a spectator, as some some guy seeing this movie in 1963, was that it's like, hey, here's the guy who gets all the chicks, you know, like not only her, but those the two other gypsy women in the tent that he had to decide their fate, et cetera, et cetera. Like this whole thing. I don't know. Every time I would skip around in this movie, it was always, you know, there was a, a nudge, nudge, wink, wink comment about how lucky Bond was getting. You know, right. So. Well, there's more yeah. coming
1: up of that,
0: too. We're going all, to give you a little bit little all more. All of that, of that soon. I just take as granted. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's. I guess so. It just seemed to, it,
2: it, it was uh, the, the strength of the of the mixture was stronger than I was used to in this movie. I don't, you know, <laughs> well, but if we're getting the to strength the strength,
1: the strength, the strength of the mix, is that what you say? Yeah, the, the strength
2: movie? of the mixture, you so know, like however much sexism was, was spooned into the water of the movie. You should know? Was, have stirred you know, this Martini a, a little bit more.
0: Right.
1: You made me think of, of Eric Idle, Doing that Sam Peckinpah routine where he was the reviewer and he's like, pretty strong meat from Sam Peckinpah. (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, Ty. I just think there is something to the scene. I think there's something more to the scene than that. Hmm. All of that's there. But I think that we are learning something about Bond in that he's going to have to make choices based on this attitude he's displaying in the scene later. Sure, sure. But that so, final
2: delivery of his line, because they both chuckle. Sure. The scene goes out on right. them chuckling, yeah. which yeah. just seems like, oh, yeah, you know, like I slept with her and I'll probably do it again. Ha ha ha. You know, just, ha, ha, ha. for sure. Yeah.
0: And they're going to yeah. do that in every Bond movie for a long time. Yeah. And then it leads us into that leads us into our next uh, sequence here pretty well, though, because it, ge- it kind of sets the tone for the next uh, bit of uh, business we're going to have between Bond and, and her and then back to M's office as well.
1: So do you guys know about what gets cut out right now before we go to that that meeting? I don't know. From the book, you mean? No, no, actually from the filming. Apparently, they had this whole sequence where Bond was on his way to the ferry to meet Tanya, and he was being followed by a car, and in the car was the guy with the black beret. And uh, they slammed on the brakes and then a third Rolls-Royce slams into the back of the car with the guy in the black beret and Karim gets out and he the, he has an altercation with the guy in the black beret about you know this is not how things are done around here and this is not what we're supposed to do and Pedro Amadares has, a, has apparently a long ash on his cigarette and he taps the cigarette and he says, well, that is life, my friend. And meanwhile, that's allowed Bond the ability to slip into another car and go on. And they got all the way into previews of it and Terrence Young says that his ten-year-old son said, "Hey, de- that guy's dead," and none of them had realized it <laughs> when when they were was, building the movie. <laughs> I was about to say, did they? So then, the
0: killing was an afterthought, or
1: well, no, they, they, just, shot, didn't real, they guy, just didn't realize that guy. They just didn't quite realize what they were doing with this guy, and they were on location and I guess they were shooting out of sequence and, <laughs> um, maybe wow. they thought this scene was going to precede arriving at the, at the mosque, but it, but it, that's not where it happened. And no, and it, it's, it's unclear, <laughs> but that they but didn't kill the guy yet. Yeah, Cause when they're back there in studio in Kareem's office, it's very clear. They say he's dead. We don't know he's dead when he's been karate chopped. I mean, sure. that's a hell of a karate shop to be able to kill him. Red Grant is really good, but, um, so that's another part of it that just like we're making it up as we go along. We're finding the <laughs> movie
0: s- script, script supervisor gets fired, right? I mean, that <laughs> comes down to them first. I would think, wow, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> And that scene, what would that scene have done for us anyway? Just an added right. level of suspense. We've already
1: been there. I think we've already yeah. been with the, oh, here's how we chase each other around the city. And here's how the p- game is played in the Balkans. And that stuff is all. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those instances where, Maybe it was giving them – Young says he wished they would have just left it in anyway because it was more excitement. But it's like I don't know that that's the kind of excitement that we need at this point in the story because we've kind of done that kind of excitement already. Mm
0: -hmm. And and we don't need the kind of excitement where it's – there's a dead guy in the scene that's just bad – that's just bad. <laughs> like, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That. But it makes sorry. me feel a lot better. I don't know if it was the last episode or a couple episodes ago where I did get slightly confused about who that guy was. I guess I wasn't the only one. Maybe they just forgot he was the same guy. Because <laughs> he's just so nondescript. Forget like, what side oh, he's working you know? for. Yeah. yeah, wait, which side? Know. Oh, yeah. Was he in the Was he in the conference room? Wait, what? No, that's that guy. <laughs>
1: so, well, he's dead now, so we don't have to deal with him anymore. Thank God.
2: Before we move on to the outdoor fairy scene. I had one, one thing to say about the, the conversation here in his office and that, you know, Mitch, you and I have talked a lot about, uh, the, the loss of, uh, blocking in movies, you know, that modern movies, there really isn't a lot of mise-en-scene staging. It's, it's just, you know, you shoot for coverage and you cut between two different actors and you might have a master shot, but you know, whatever. But this scene, there's, three shots in the movie. There's the shot that starts on the map and it dollies back to reveal kind of a two-shot of them talking, and then it actually pushes back in. It's kind of interesting. It dollies back and then pushes back in. Then we cut to an insert of the map, you know, his finger pointing to stuff on the map. And then we cut to the final shot, which plays out to the end of the scene, which is a two-shot with all the dialogue. And here's what I wanted to bring up, was that even though I think it's cool that older movies would play scenes out in longer takes and there was more elaborate blocking and, you know, with the actors and the camera, but the old fashioned artifact of that style that I think is totally unrealistic is presents in this scene where it's, uh, where two actors are both facing the camera and the guy in the foreground is saying all his lines with his back to James Bond and, and, And it doesn't seem to be motivated by anything other than you need to face the camera. So there's this kind of awkward look. And so many old movies have that look uh, of the, uh, you know, and soap. it's kind of that soap opera thing where, you know, people are always facing in the same direction and delivering lines to somebody behind them. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that up and didn't know what your thoughts were about that. That's
1: a that's a totally good point. And I never really think about it, but it makes Oh, I think about it all the time. Sometimes
0: it really depends on the strength of the scene. uh, I won't think about it if I'm really into what they're saying and I'm really into the movie. But there's been times where I'm like, what? I've never talked to anyone's back for this long. Like, why would you do this? And it does. busy very soap opera.
1: He wants to have sex with Tanya and that's all he can think of. And he's looking off into the into the distance thinking about how great it would be as he yeah. warns Blonde yeah. about it.
2: <laughs> That's got to be his motivation. He's doing a little business with his hands, I can see. So I c- maybe he's supposed to be doing something. I mean, like it's sort of a lame attempt, but I can see that in between his lines of dialogue, he's kind of moving something around. So I don't know if there's supposed to be another desk over there or not, but it's it's awkward. It is. It,
1: You're right. To a different kind of awkward now. We, we, get, we get to the ferry. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether it's just this really beautiful transfer I was watching, but I, I will say that one of the interesting things is how much of this appears to be on location and when they go to the studio for um, for the close-ups, and we'll get to that, I guess, as we get to the end of the scene, but mm-hmm. a lot of this seems to be playing out on location, uh, on that ferry.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely was on the lookout for how they shot this and how they lit it, and my best guess is that uh, it's not lit with electricity at all, that they're using reflectors. So there's a close-up on Tanya here early in the scene where uh, the, you could tell, like, depending on when they shot it, it's the sun goes behind some clouds. So the sky and the buildings in the background keep kind of changing their intensity. But the fill light that's hitting her changes in equal proportion, which leads me to believe that, they're using a a reflector as opposed to a light. Otherwise the shadow would stay the same consistency, but it doesn't. So on the cloudy shots, the fill light is less. So they're kind of the, the camera operators having to ramp open and close exposure, you know, and they've just got a reflector trying to, you know, hit her. But, uh, but that's the advantage of a reflector is that it's always directly proportional to the amount of light that's hitting it. So, you know, if one goes down, so does the other. Maybe there's no way to get a generator on a boat. Or, you know, to power big lights. Right.
1: Right. Well, both of them look really great, too, by the way. That's the other thing that's so interesting is that I just watched a movie last night, which I won't mention what it was. And uh, it's a newer film, and everybody looked kind of terrible. And I was just, I was really struck by the fact that the DP was not doing anything to help anybody. And it was a romantic kind of movie, romantic comedy kind of movie. And man, they both look gorgeous. Yeah. The, the makeup and hair people are doing their job and Ted Moore's lighting he's he knows what he's doing because they just look fantastic in this stuff
0: yeah they they do like it, they do look great in the scene and then and then we cut to close-ups you know like the close-ups are a little jarring uh, for sure especially i think it's the first time it happens is with bond right and the, it's like Whoa, the hold background on. behind <laughs> the him background is is, just, is rough yeah, really rough background I, I take yeah. it
2: back there might be now that I look on the angle back on Bond there's you know the first, not his close up but his uh, over the shoulder you know where you can see her blue scarf on the back of her head and he's sitting there with his hand propped on the camera um, there's they've got to hat they're lighting him uh they are so, <laughs> um, but that is just what. So, forget
1: everything you said about reflectors, well, no, forget I, all of it.
2: No, they did use reflectors on some of it, but I think w- when it started to get way too cloudy on some of these, they brought in the big guns, or you know, they probably had them all ready to go and could yeah. choose which option worked best. But, uh, yeah, they're definitely it's funny, like they're dealing with some weather here. It's funny, <laughs> like you know, being a filmmaker, you're like, oh man. You can see those clouds in the background and you know some shots are sunny and some shots are cloudy and they're they're doing their best to balance it all out and that's what has to happen on on any movie you know you can't just yeah. the 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 money the money clock is always ticking and so you you can't just wait for the weather to be perfect you got to keep rolling no matter what
1: unless you're David Lean
2: Yeah right yeah <laughs> I was just gonna say the work. I mean, this is moving farther into the scene, but the the insert close up of the camera. It's great that Ever ready batteries get a nice yeah. product placement. Just <laughs> yeah. a
0: classic nine volt battery right there yeah. in the front. <laughs> Love it. This is so so gadgets. You know, obviously Bond and gadgets uh, are often sometimes the thing that people like the most about Bond are the gadgets, and we're still in a super lo-fi era of Bond gadgets here. Like this would have been. A pin or something, you know, like it would have been sleek and there would have been kind of no explanation as to how it records maybe if, uh, or or we would have gotten the explanation earlier with Q. It's like, this is, looks like a standard fountain pen, but if, you know, (laughs) you press this, but it doesn't really, there's nothing much, there's no science there, nothing that you can see that indicates, and this is like straight up, look. Somebody built this thing. It's got a battery right Nine volts of
1: espionage it's right It's right not even...
0: Yeah, and I, and I dig it. You know, I mean, I love I love the sleek kind of crazy gadgets that start to come along later, but this is fun
1: for sure. I mean, I'm not 100% sure why. Why does he have to record this and send it back to these guys when clearly Bond could remember everything that she's telling him? Yeah. Uh, so there, we'll get to... We'll get to that. We need it's a device. A it's it's a
0: not device. only a gadget; it's a device. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, and and why you know it's not that well hidden either. Like, why not just have a recorder? And why not meet? Well, I guess they can't. Well, could they meet more secretively? Well, he's already necessary? said her cover
1: is blown. Right? He said he said that with the death of the Beret Man, Tanya's cover is blown. Why not just so have they, her
0: call him? Hey, yeah, it's me, Tanya. Yeah, Tanya, hi. And, uh, here's the deal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a whole lot of reasons why they don't need this camera recorder thing, but whatever. Well, the other
1: question about her is she seems to be vulnerable here. She seems to be kind of cynically wary of, I know what it is you really want. Mm-hmm. And that she tries that, and that kind of doesn't get her anywhere. He's like, well, it'll be time for things later. Yeah. We need to get the business done. And then, as we'll see in the next scene, she changes her communication strategy with him to something more overtly seductive. But, like, there is this moment of vulnerability where you do feel like she's kind of putting it all out there, and yeah. Bond is just sort of like, there'll be time for that later. we got to get into the business. I mean, I okay.
0: Why is she doing this on a recording? She, she knows that they're recording it. She knows the recording's going to some other people. Is there... I want to think that there's some reason that she's doing it, but there's not. It's just kind of – it's all just set up for the comedy.
1: Right, the comedy, right? the tired, and, this and this is going to be a shtick we're going to see over and over again, which is the stuffy people back at the office are privy to James Bond's bedroom antics, right?
0: Right, and it works a lot better when it's Roger Moore than in this – much straighter film like much more like yeah serious yeah. film here it just kind of sticks out as like it makes me not like her that much it makes me not like them for making the character be this way yeah it's kind of pathetic and yeah. uh and it, and it it's low hanging fruit in a way to to make bond look uh what's the word for it? i don't want to say look cooler but that's kind of what they're doing they're saying oh he's cool he's he's about business he's kind of sticking to what he to to his guns as far as what he said to um cream earlier so i guess there's that but at the same time it's just a little bit i i I mean i kind of enjoy the comedy of it i don't hate it or anything but when you you don't want to get into it too deep because it's kind of doesn't make a lot of sense yeah it's too easy so
1: it's and it's a real as we go to m's office with another really interesting transition from the little recorder to the big recorder right Mm -hmm. um the guys are all smoking. Like this is a men's smoker. Yes, yes, they may yes, as yes. well be watching stag films because <laughs> you, they're just puffing away and all yeah. kind of <laughs> clustered around this thing. And it's pretty gross if you think give it too much thought. And there's Money Penny just sort of enduring it and kind of getting her own kicks out of it. But it's um, so much so that eventually they even ask her to leave because it's just too hot to handle on yeah. on what is a really. So this is, this is Bond like, well, it reminds me of an interesting time with M in Tokyo, and then he switches it off, but then when he switches it back on, the, the conversation doesn't go, Bond doesn't continue to regale them with that tale unless the editors uh, in MI6 have cut that stuff out before this tape got over to the well, big boss. So it's, it's sort of like, yeah, it's a joke, but it doesn't, doesn't hold a lot of water.
0: And it doesn't match what was happening in the scene earlier. Like, why would Bond suddenly say that? He's been very just. Let's stick to the story for now. Why would he suddenly go? Oh, it reminds me of a time. It's just, I, it's I just real know. hamfisted comedy. Yeah. And so they haven't got the comedy down yet with Bond here. Uh-huh. Uh, you know. Well, in that's subsequent why, films it gets better, but that was
2: one of the reasons why I just felt as I was watching this, I felt that, to quote my own bad metaphor, that the mixture was too strong on this one because her character seemed to be unable to just she was unable to control herself even though that she knew that this was being recorded i mean it just strained credibility and and just again played into some sort of fantasy of the <laughs> she's just so smitten by bond and irresistible that she just can't help herself or something i don't know it just and so I was even, that's what made me skip around the movie again. I'm like, is this, is she, does she have a hidden motive why she's doing this? So I kind of skipped around later in the movie. No, no, this, this is, that was kind of it. But uh yeah, no,
0: you really want her to, you really want her to be playing Bond or something or trying to, but it's not happening. Yeah. yeah. Uh the,
2: the one thing I will mention about the uh lighting of that fairy scene that we, that you had brought up, Mitch, is that. Um, the the close-ups on Tanya are to at least to my eyes look like they they're really there like they there's they're on the boat but the reverse close-up back on to James Bond is clearly in the studio with a rear projection behind him and so my hunch is is that they shot Bonds close up but the weather had gotten so bad that either they couldn't get the exposure to match or probably the sound was ruined because of wind or maybe it started raining or something and so they just probably said no forget it we got to reshoot this in the studio because it's not good enough to you know where so (laughs) that would be my hunch as because it's really the only shot in the whole only see in the scene that is not on location it's just that because the insert of his hand on the recorder like with the sort of the wake of the boat on the water in the background that's real everything's real so that insert
1: is real i was going to ask you yeah I, I, i
2: i looked closely i mean it looks like it's the, the real deal and I think the only rear projected shot is that close-up of bond so
1: maybe they shot her first when the light was best that would be my guess is took, that they <laughs> took care of her first which is good you know like yeah and then and then they can always get him back in the studio true yeah the minutes end with the very beginning of this you don't get the full thing but they do end with another great transition which is an audio transition of M telling Penny what to write and then Bond reading what has been written. Mm-hmm. And it's also, this whole sequence is so razzle-dazzle with these transitions that it doesn't make you think about like how much time did it take to get the tape back to London <laughs> so that then these guys can listen to it yeah. and then send the cable, how long does it take to get the, ca- the cables faster to get to Bond But it all seems to be happening almost simultaneously, which is the magic of the editing, when, if you think about it, there must be big chunks of time between all of these scenes. Yeah, there was no
2: Dropbox back then. They couldn't just uh, put the file. (laughs) It had to Mm -hmm. be transported back to London.
1: I feel like there's a
0: history of, um, you know, movie time with these kind of things, like where we're just not ever supposed to ask that question. I always thought when I would watch Twin Peaks and Cooper's talking to Diane in the hand recorder, the dictaphone, like, make sure to send some earplugs because these Norwegian guests are very loud and I can't sleep at night. And then that night he's got (laughs) earplugs. I'm like, how did Diane get that tape?
1: (laughs) I have no idea how that works. But
0: uh, maybe he's played the tape into a
1: phone. I don't know. There's that documentary, um, uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Mm -hmm. And David Newman is talking about how They had written out their first treatment for Bonnie and Clyde and they had gone to Truffaut Mm -hmm. and Truffaut broke this treatment down and kind of gave him this this long introduction to how you really make movies. And he said one of the things that he talked about was film time versus real time, which Mm -hmm. they didn't understand, apparently, at that point. And he said Mm -hmm. that Truffaut really broke it down to them, the difference between how film time works and how real time works. I think that's I think it's one of the things that Mm -hmm. movies do so well.
0: Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if it's something that movies will always be able to do in our age of uh, cynical uh, deep dive into every detail of everything. If people are going and people talking about movies in increments of time, like seven minutes or one minute, where we're we're actually having this discussion, these discussions become more and more prevalent. If that concept will disappear, as in the audience will now not accept it any longer, I kind of wonder about that. In our age of over overly critical thinking in a sense i don't want to ever say critical thinking is a bad thing but with movies in a way it could go a little too far because we lose uh some of the magic i guess Uh, so i wonder i wonder if you could still do those things uh to me i think it goes back to always that thing that we always talk about where you can get away with things as long as you make a good movie you know as long as the story works you make a good movie people aren't really going to be bothered by cheats and magic time and so on but
1: uh i don't and know it's an interesting like concept yeah so when you're in that space of the movie and you're watching it from beginning in and you're not stopping at every minute or seven minutes or mm-hmm. then you you hit this state where you really do you experience it like a dream and you and dream yeah. logic works you know yeah
0: but you got to make sure you hit that frequency you know like if, as a filmmaker if you don't tune that in or get the audience tuned into your frequency, then they're going to just go, what? No, come on. (laughs) How'd they get that tape there? You know, to me, it's just fun to think about. I never, I never take points off of a movie or go, Oh, well you lost me. That movie lost me when that tape showed up. (laughs) <laughs> way quicker than how it long would did have, it
1: but... take indy to get to that bar and sit down and have that drink after miriam got blew, blown up I, it doesn't make any sense to me. right
0: <laughs> what so how do you how do you take that submarine to that island come on yeah, <laughs> that one is submarine to that, that one is a little bit of yeah, a challenge but i'm okay yep, yep, by that point in the, the movie you could do whatever you want <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a little shout out to our friends at the indiana jones minute yes yes <laughs> Uh, Any final thoughts, Todd, about this or the, the film in general?
2: Um, I, I still find it really enjoyable. It's starting to feel much more like James Bond is starting to find his footing, you know, and Robert Shaw sure is a great antagonist, uh, with his blonde hair and everything. You know, that's, it's funny. That's what I remember when I saw the movie as a kid. Uh, I remember, uh, the guy from Jaws with blonde hair, uh, I remember the, the the lady with the knife in her foot or in her shoe. <laughs> and uh, that's probably it, you know, and and an exploding briefcase like that. Those are the three things I remember from seeing it as a kid. So, you know, the, those images stuck with me.
1: And those are the kind of elements they're going to make sure remain in the rest of the Bond movies.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah I don't know if I've mentioned this. I mentioned the fact that this wasn't one of the movies that I watched a lot as a kid. I did not know that this was the same person from the sting or from jaws which would have been the sting would have been the movie i first would have known him from jaws later i didn't know until i until adulthood that this was the same guy i, I had no idea <laughs> uh robert shaw was was red Grant. i just thought to me they don't look i mean when i look at him now i'm like yeah obviously it's the same guy but they don't look the same to me as a kid i mean they're like way different plus you know he's just not that same kind of the Irish brogue that he has in the sting and, and, you know, obviously Quint is a whole other thing, but anyway, I would kind of wonder if other people were the same as me, where they had to catch up to the fact that that was him later.
2: Yeah, I'm sure I probably didn't make the connection. I'm pretty sure like my stepdad or somebody told me, you know, I right. probably learned that information, uh, secondhand and then went, Oh yeah, yeah, that's who it is. But, uh, but my parents took me to see Robin and Marion and uh, and Swashbuckler as as a kid too. So I I was familiar with the Robert Shaw canon all through the seventies. <laughs> <70s. laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah, man, that the red Shaw suit in
1: Swashbuckler is just <laughs> that outfit is ridiculous. It's amazing. <laughs> all right, well, Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to to talk about these minutes with us. It's always a pleasure having you on the show.
2: You bet. Thanks, guys.
0: Uh, and as always, you can visit us over on Twitter at 007x7podcast 007 7 or you can follow our Alien Minute podcast Twitter at Alien Minute Pod. As we've mentioned, there's a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute to get some. But Todd's on there about six times, I think, <laughs> on our Patreon page. So go over and check out some of that.
1: Thanks very much. See you next week.